Hello, everyone. Welcome to God and Other Delicacies. I'm Nicholas D'Agosto. Thank you all for being here. I hope this show is finding you healthy, safe, and sane wherever you are in the world. Today, I have the privilege of welcoming Jeff Newberg to the show. Jeff works as a therapist specializing in trauma, shame, and systems of abuse. He's also a lifelong artist with a past in visual art, music, and acting. Unsurprisingly, acting is how we met, having spent a few years together in a formative Meisner class about 15 years ago. Recently, his creative energies have been focused on writing, and his first novel, Shame Baseball, about Christian faith deconstruction, has just been released through Whip and Stock. Jeff and I are old friends, but there's a lot I don't know about regarding the specifics of his faith and life journey, especially of late, and I'm excited to have him unveil it all for me now. So let's illuminate the deconstruction. Welcome to the show, newbie. Oh, thanks, Nick. 15 years, why did you say that? Ah, man, it's because it's... That's every, so fucking long It's ago. so shocking to me that I can do things like that, and I think I say it to myself just to remind myself, like, I don't know, I, maybe I'm trying to numb myself to the shock, but I'm still shocked by it every time I do it. Yeah. I don't know, I turned 40. Are we the exact same age? Are you, you're a little younger than me, right? No, I'm a little behind. Yeah. Yeah, we were really close. I am in November. Oh, yeah, yeah. I mean, what are you going to do? Yeah. It, this is the time. <laughs> this is the time I, to I'm have gonna, the years dawn on you. Uh, Nick, I, don't, I mean, you, <laughs> yeah. you speak to yourself. Newbie, I just want to say on air that you're the first person that ever introduced me to Smog, a.k.a. Bill Callahan. Oh, my gosh. And I really have appreciated that in my life. So I just wanted to say thanks. It's so funny that you should say that, Nick, because I was in a conversation last night with a friend about musical discovery, and you to uh, steal a phrase from uh, Bonnie Prince Billy, you came blacking in my mind. Oh. I d it wasn't that dark. Why was I blacking in your mind? Well, it's funny. I was already thinking about Bonnie Prince Billy because in, in a way, that's how the conversation started. And I started talking about Cash's recordings on American with Rick Rubin. But it also led me to talk about the song off those records that I hadn't had my attention drawn to until you did, Nick, If I Give My Soul. Oh, Yeah. And as a Christian covered in shame and pathos, and I, I think pathos is sort of one way to talk about some of the lighter elements of, of pain that actually have something to teach us. Like, it's just a, such a beautiful and painful song. I, I used to use the term projectile crying mm. to describe what that song did to me. Mm. If the first notes of that song would come up in a playlist and I was having a party, I would run across the room. <laughs> to shut it off. <laughs> of course, who's letting a song like that into their playlist on a party? A pretty maudlin dude, I guess. Yeah, I was going to say, it's like you must have really enjoyed that, the tension between making yourself shut off your projectile crying in the midst <laughs> of such a large group. You must have enjoyed demonstrating oh. that or performing that somehow around oh, your friends. Oh, look at, oh, I feel so caught right now. Well, you know, though, you're right. I mean, I remember how affecting that was for you. I did that in my mm. private my private moment thing. That's and, right. I forgot the context. Yeah. Yeah, that's lovely, man. All right. Well, very good. Okay. Tell me quickly, where can everybody get your book and give us the elevator pitch on the book? And then we'll do the full like understanding of the book and put it in the context of your life and how it became this necessity for you to write later. Well, you know, Nick, from my immense success as a screenwriter and actor, you probably surmise that I'm excellent at elevator pitches. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Okay. And All so, right. Well, so, here's, so give so me a bunch of way. lines and I'll edit it into an elevator pitch. No, so I actually <laughs> looked up what I wrote about it on Twitter, my non-pitch pitch, because, pitch, uh, you know, I'm, I'm cursed with the need to make a joke out of everything. So here's this. 
Do you wish Marilyn Robinson's Gilead were neither wise, nor patient, nor kind? Do you find yourself hankering for Kerouac's on the road to include Christian faith deconstruction? Do you want Tara Westover's educated to be not quite as beautifully composed? Me neither, but still, and stick with me here, you should read my book, Shame Baseball Anyway, available for order now from Whip and Stock. You're going to get so many purchases off of that. Oh, yeah, yeah. You name all these great books that it's just it's not as good as. What did you have for breakfast this morning, Jeff Newberg? Um, oh, man, I knew this question was coming, and I didn't do the interesting choice. Lucky boy in Pasadena, home of legendary breakfast burritos. But to my mind, the more legendary breakfast sandwich they do, just the classic grilled sourdough, runny egg breakfast sandwich is pretty amazing. I did not do that. I just did my my norm. My norm is the smoothie, tons of blueberries, tons of protein powder, and uh, like frozen spinach, get some, get some greens in there. That was what I went with. I like how you played both sides of this, newbie. I like that you- Gotta have it both ways. You got to have the healthy breakfast that you actually did have this morning. Mm. But then you let everybody know what you wish you <laughs> could have told them that you are actually having. <laughs> All right, yeah, man. It sounds like the response of a guy <laughs> who wrote a fictionalized version of his life story. <laughs> well, let's hear it, man. So how and when were you introduced to the idea of God in your life? So- I had an existential crisis at the age of 11. I was one of those kids that, you know, when he was four teachers and adults would look at and be like, oh, you're, you're an old soul, which I think is a way of telling a child, you're, you're going to be suicidal one day. <laughs> and I never interpreted it that way, but uh, maybe that is I'm a, the I'm a little, yeah, I'm a, I'm a little grumpy about it, I guess. Yeah. And I had an existential crisis at 11 when sort of everything came unglued with my, my parents' divorce. And just sort of really wanted, wanted to make some meaning of that. And I'd always been a deeply spiritual person. And, and my name for that spirituality was nothing more than, you know, God. And, you know, as this journey continued, you know, I'm, I'm a white dude from Scottsdale, Arizona. So really what's available to you? And the answer for me was by the time I was sort of hitting the end of this crisis around like 13 uh, Scottsdale Bible Church is the answer. That's what was available. And the youth group is the only place that held plausible claim to an answer for both my, my search for meaning and where to find the hot chicks. Mm-hmm. So that's where I ended up. And uh, the bait and switch was, uh, I, I left with zero hot chicks and a, a commitment to celibacy until, until marriage. Uh, but I got married to Jesus. Mm. And... That sort of evangelical stance, I think at the time, I had a really strong conception that that really shifted for me in college, where I sort of got into the the more uh, mystical traditions of the faith. And then as far as my practice and sort of my my theological commitments, and of course, quote, theological commitments, end quote, are really important to, um, you know, institutionalized religion folk as I was. All that shifted toward the Reformed tradition, Reformed taking its uh, name from, from Luther and the Reformation, but, you know, very much taking its theology from John Calvin. All right. Well, I'm going to have to slow you down here because I don't want you yeah. to get too far ahead too fast. We got sure. to lay some groundwork here. Okay. You were born and raised in Scottsdale, right? You're there mm-hmm. from birth. All around the North Phoenix area. So, 
the the mailing addresses would have been Phoenix, Scottsdale, Paradise Valley. These towns sort of go in and between each other on the map. And do you remember in your child brain, the pre-11-year-old brain, as your parents' marriage being mostly happy? Or can you contextualize that now? Yeah. Um, it's certainly not mostly happy. I think that there was, uh, you know, an immense amount of tension and sadness and depression and anxiety and anger. But I think we were all sort of able, able to cope well enough. And I think back to that time, and I, I definitely see my mom as a really deeply spiritual person. And I, I think I got that from her in, in, in both the nature and the nurture senses. And yeah, I, I always connected deeply to whatever it is we, we really mean when we say God, right? You can be standing in a, in a church where everybody signed the same theological white paper. And even there, no one truly believes the same thing That's when they say God. One, one guy's thinking of his dad. Another guy's thinking of his grandfather. Someone else is thinking about Santa Claus. Of course, I said a Christian church, so of course I named a bunch of dudes. <laughs> and, you know, even there, there's not complete agreement. And and so I think it's really important to say that I always had a strong connection to God. And I don't think it's, I don't think it's sacrilege. And I don't think it's any less accurate to substitute a word like love or meaning or connectedness for the word God. You have one brother, right? Well, that's a really tricky question, Nick. Yeah, um, I couldn't remember I exactly one, how that all shook out. Yeah, I have one full brother who's two, two and a half years older than me. Uh, that was a really rough relationship when we were young. I was this you know, sweet little cherub uh, feeler uh, like my mom, and he was a you know, really angry kid like my dad, and he just beat the shit out of me. Pretty, pretty systematic. Uh, I don't think torture is an inaccurate word until... Mm until sort of after a few years after all the divorce stuff, it, it was sort of like we were in it all together because things got really crazy with, with the household of my mom and my stepdad and everything. So that was a complex relationship that remains complex. We love each other very much, but it's weird. And he's two and a half years older than me, same age difference between uh, my, my daughter and my son now. And the other brothers, my mom got remarried when I was 11 or so. And so I had two stepbrothers, one younger than both me and my brother, two years younger than me, and one much older. And we four boys lived in the house with, with me and my mom, my stepdad. And that was a really kind of fun gang, gang of four boys sense for, for some time before, you know, things in that house got really unsustainable for me and my brother. And we moved out and lived with my dad. And I guess in a technical sense, they're no longer my stepbrothers because my mom and my stepdad got divorced. Um, wow. I, you know, I still love them very much and they're still family to me. And then my mom being my dad's first wife and uh, his current wife being his third wife, I have a half brother who just graduated high school and, and we're very close. Right. I do remember that. So today... Do you, have you done the hard work of repairing all or, you know, culling through this difficult past with both of your parents? Or do you find yourself having really connected more on a deeper level, maybe with your mom, because it, you, it seemed that you have a certain kinship with your mom, as you're referencing? Do you feel like 
you've gone back through all of this stuff and done the work with them? Or do you feel like there's a connection with one or, and not the other? Yeah. Um, you know, I'll be working through it for the rest of my life. The book is a huge part of that. The, the book takes the form of a letter to uh, the protagonist's father. Hmm. And that's where that reference to Marilyn Robinson's Gilead comes in. Um, her brilliant novel is a letter from a father to a son, hmm. much more wise and patient and kind than my, my angry version of it. And yeah, my, my mom died in 2015. And I, I sincerely hope that remains the worst thing that ever happens to me. Hmm. My experience in therapy, uh, in like the year before her death, some trauma therapy that me and my co-parent went through uh, for a trauma she'd suffered and then ongoing couples therapy and then um, ongoing um, therapy for myself is a big part of what made me a therapist and, and also made me want to work through these issues, which coexist. You know, my client work, my work with clients is work with myself. Mm-hmm. They, they dialogue with one another. And so too the book. Uh, so too writing the book is a huge part of how I've worked through the meanings of my relationship to my mom, uh, my ongoing relationship to my mom and my relationship to my dad. And so what that meant with my dad was, you know, drawing some very strict boundaries and taking a a very large period of time away from talking to him at all because things got so toxic so quickly every single time. Mm. And, you know, trying to spend some time, outside the structures that taught me shame and self-criticism and and even self-hatred and to spend time out of those relationships in order to rediscover what I, what I might be able to, to build back up. And so, you know, it was an attempt at therapy with me and my dad and I was very surprised and and very happy that he tried it. It, it, it did not, um, did not go very far. And, you know, I, I think it's true to say that, we're trying in our way, but a huge part of my trying means maintaining a lot of space and a, a lot of boundaries. Jeff, this is a place where I want to stop for a second because I think where we start in the second section, we're going to kind of start in a new place. But thank you for all of that. Mm-hmm. There's a lot here already, and I'm looking forward to the rest. So we'll see you all back here in a couple minutes. At times like this, it is necessary that we ask ourselves what is worth talking about, what is worth listening to, and what we each can do to make the world around us better in our own small way. Discussions revolving around a person's beliefs and perspectives on God are something I personally can speak to, and my intention is to create a space where our deepest feelings about God and life can be expressed, heard, and better understood. That is one of the motivations behind God and Other Delicacies, and it is my humble hope that it contributes to the positive side of the cultural ledger. It is my intention to continue to create opportunities here for the presentation of those ideas that are different than mine, so that I can listen to them, come to understand them better, and hopefully discover ways in which I and each of us can participate in fostering communities that are ultimately more fair and loving for all. All right, everyone, we're back with Jeff, and we're going to jump back into where he's at in college. So he leaves Arizona. He's, would you consider, is this where you're born again in your teenage years? Would you call that born again? 
Oh, oh yeah, hell yes, man. That's <laughs> so, what we did. A rollicking affair with you know Duncan underwater, and uh, our God is an awesome God played on an electric drum set. Wow. All right. Yeah. So then you take that, you have that moment, and you take all of that fire, all of that mm. passion and love. I mean, love for the idea at that moment. Mm. You take that to Northwestern, which is where you go to school, and that's where you. You're doing a bunch of art there. You meet a lot of other friends and important artists there. I know that because I've met some of those friends through you. But mm. you, you're studying religion there. That's your primary degree, right? Yeah, yeah. So unexpectedly, I became an artist there. I'd started playing the drums just at the end of high school. And I'd, I'd like dicked around in drama class. But I, I went to Northwestern um, to get a good education you know, even as a evangelical, you know, the sort of education that a quote Bible college unquote could offer was not super attractive to me. And I, I was quite convinced I was going to be a preacher. And I thought it made sense if I was going to spend the rest of my life telling people about my Christian faith to, to better understand other faith systems. And uh, the religion department at Northwestern is amazing. And I had a, a wonderful experience there. But really dove in, in the creative way as, as a drummer and, and musician, but also a DJ of, of other musicians, uh, having a radio show and, and being at the radio station there was just so great being in the Chicago scene in the early 2000s. That's right. I forgot that you were a DJ there. I mean, obviously I didn't know you during that time, but I remember that being a part of our conversations when you would talk to me about music in particular, someone like oh, yeah. Bill Callahan. Yeah, it was, yeah, that's where the whole, yeah, it's really depressing now because the whole library of recommendations I can give someone is generally still from the early 2000s. Sure, man. <laughs> and people are like, wow, this was obscure back then. It's very obscure. I was like, well, yeah, that's all I got. Um, <laughs> and so really dove in as a writer, added a, a fiction writing major, which was just the greatest. Back then, I, I don't know what it's like now, but back then Northwestern was the only place where there was an undergrad writing program in the way, in the workshop style that the best writing MFA degrees go with, you know, a roundtable style and, and, you know, a strict admissions process and, and just being able to work through stuff. And because I did that, I got to study with, I mean, my heroes. Um, Stuart Dybeck, one of my favorite writers in the world. And I, I actually just emailed him a couple of weeks ago. And it's, it's so great to, to still have, whether those are, you know, some of those are literal relationships or, or some are just being able to get to know someone's craft, like Christian Wyman, the, the poet and essayist, and being exposed to, to his work by being taught by him, those things were just amazing to me. And that's sort of how I felt about my whole experience, whether it was the acting program or the visual art program. It was just, I was a kid in a candy store in college. And it, it's really interesting to me to look at, at the ways my spiritual journey rode along with that and the ways that I changed as a Christian and, and really moved away from evangelical con conceptions of faith. I think the interesting thing now is the ways that I didn't move away so far, you know, found, found a theology that certainly had a much more progressive element, a much more outward facing posture, care for, for others within sort of that reformed world but nonetheless, an extremely stringent view of the world. And, and I would say 
you know, to diss hard on Calvinism here, which I do it every, every chance I can get now, a really shame soaked worldview that, you know, hurt me very badly for a very long period of time. I've only begun to deconstruct in the last few years. Hmm. This is a good moment for me to give a little bit of a personal point of view and reflect back some of what I'm receiving, especially as I'm translating it for the audience here. Like, Mm-hmm. Ever since I've known you, you have been such a devout Christian. Mm. And you and I, you know, we, we've each had children uh, over the last, you know, you started a little bit before me, but mm. um, over the last seven years or so, my child is mm-hmm. going to be four very soon. Mm-hmm. And it's really very engaging for me to be feeling this story along with you because I really don't know it. And it's really kind of amazing because here we are now, we're about at the point in the story where very soon you and I are going to meet, right? You're going to come out to LA. Yeah, yeah. And then we're both going to find this acting class. Yeah. Bill Alderson's Meisner class, which was this really formative experience. Certainly for me, I think it was for you. I know for different reasons, you know, we each take different things from it, but it was a really powerful class not only because of who Bill was as a teacher, both good and mm. bad, but also um, because of the friendships that were formed, the relationships that yeah. were formed at that time that was, were important to us in our 20s. Yeah. It's really interesting to feel this story here. So you come out to LA and you start pursuing acting and writing, right? You come out like what yeah. a lot of young artists are coming out is to get into the entertainment industry. Yeah. Yeah, I, um, I fell deeply in love with acting, writing, and became extremely disillusioned with the the prospect of church work. I never enjoyed spending a lot of time around Christians within Christian settings. It, it depressed the hell out of me. And so to imagine that being my job was, uh, you know, it just really turned me off just as art was really turning me on. And then, yeah, me and you, Nick, met at ye old acting class and yeah, it meant a ton to me. And I think for me, it was a real extension of so much of what had me falling in love with acting and with, with Meisner in college and really tuned in a lot, a lot of that stuff in a really good way. I think I would frame, you know, my experience within a lot of the acting world and specifically acting class in, in similar ways to how I would frame my religious experience. And that's one of the ways I deal with it in the book is to try to have compassion for this younger version of me who, who did the best he could, you know, a white kid in Scottsdale, Arizona, wasn't going to become a Zen Buddhist. And, and that white kid can't be blamed for that. He found something better than what he had. Um, it's entirely possible that, you know, evangelical Christianity literally saved him. Hmm. Um, aside from whatever spiritual metaphor that phrase means. And I have compassion for the college kid who had to move away from that. And I think all these kids I'm looking at, they, they made a choice for greater health. And the problem isn't the choice. The, the problem was framing it as an absolute. Um, the evangelical me who thought he found capital T, capital T, the truth. And, and same for the you know reformed Calvinist me. I think in a lot of ways that was even more dangerous because of how much shame, self-criticism, and criticism are wrapped up in Calvinism. The way I look at it now is, yeah, they looked healthier because of how unhealthy my family system was. But 
when you define healthier as healthy, you know, you're going to get run into some problems. And, you know, honestly, Nick, when I, when I look back at the guy who met you, I see, I feel a lot of pain. I, I know I was a person in a lot of pain who didn't know how to deal with it. And I know that one of the ways I'd been taught to deal with it within the church and within my family was this treadmill of, of criticism being internalized as self-criticism and back again. Mm. And I remember, Nick, some of you are in my earliest conversations, um, hurting you quite deeply. Mm. And honestly, Nick, I want to apologize. Oh, my gosh. Oh, my gosh. I don't know how to take that. That's okay. Why are you apologizing? I can remember a moment where I, to make offhanded criticisms, offhanded sarcastic criticisms, was the water I swam in. You know, it was, it was what I was taught by, by my dad and by my brother and, and sort of by, by every place I'd been in. And so it was, I, I said something that was so normal to me. And it happened to play on, you know, this thing that I, I was newer to town than you were. This thing that is so a part of this town and as a sensitive human being was something that you were so attuned to, this acting class energy of being the, the successful one. Hmm. And I made an off-handed criticism that tuned into to that thing. And... I remember seeing how hurt you were, and I remember realizing that I'd hurt you, and I, and and it shook me, and I know I apologized at the time. Hmm. And so I don't think it's that I'm apologizing for that moment. I think I'm apologizing that that same guy, you know, in whatever conversations you and I would have, especially around religious matters, you know, use this word um, pious. I think it's a really good word for for who I was. I think there was so much going on in me that had trouble with the openness of, of your faith that was threatened by it, hmm. that I didn't treat you with the care that I want to treat the people I love. Wow, Jeff. God, you just never know what you can uncork in these conversations. <laughs> that's really beautiful man thanks of course yeah no I mean I definitely have chills receiving this um, mm -hmm. yeah Jeff wow wow um, I was on edge at times with your piety I was mm -hmm. you know I, I mean I we saw enough in each other that you know, we connected as friends, but there was something that there was discomfort at times. Mm -hmm. And, um, it's really amazing <laughs> this stuff. It's mm -hmm. really cool to get older in this way, to bring it back to like, you yeah. know, 15 years, right? You know, yeah. we can make those jokes, but so if, fuck man, it's, it's much cooler. It's much cooler to learn and get better at things than it is to, you know, you can opine about like the loss of youth or something, but, mm. but boy, I feel much more alive when, 
when unexpected gifts like this arrive, you know? So that's mm. really interesting, man. And and I certainly, I don't want to belabor this because it's not like you, I don't, no. I didn't come into this conversation thinking you needed to apologize to me, <laughs> but I, I just think it's, it, it says. I only book guests. <laughs> yes, yeah, right. Me. Yeah, this is. Regarding, regarding is so, our relationship. <laughs> but I really. Dad, you're next. <laughs> yeah. Um, I just, I think I'm just, you're just feeling it. Uh, basically, I'm, you have struck me. So I'm just trying to kind mm-hmm. of like take it, you know, and uh, yeah. and move forward in a way that isn't indulgent, but also just acknowledges it. And um, mm-hmm. so that's really amazing, man. You know, there's a lot more to your journey to figure out how we get to this point now, because I, oh, yeah. it's just, there's just a, what you said about that openness is a really beautiful comment. It's a lovely compliment and and I had been doing a lot of this work you know by the time we met you know yeah. because I came from not evangelical background and so I had maybe a little bit you could say on some levels I had less of a track to have to run but mm. I was going through a lot of my own essentially de- to take a word that you're using the deconstructing at that time although I was not able yeah. to call it that at that time I was just yeah. leaving the leaving my faith and trying to find something new yeah Anyway, it's all very powerful. And uh, okay, Jeff. I mean, <laughs> <laughs> sorry. Uh, no, it's it's whatever, man. I think that's really beautiful. It's almost like I. This is you know what to to take from that acting class. Mm. Don told me Don Bloomfield, who was an assistant to uh, an associate oh, yeah. teacher to uh, to Bill. He said to me once that you know if you finished your scene and you have no idea what happened, then something extraordinary happened. Mm. on stage. And yeah. I feel a little bit like that right now. <laughs> I, I'm not mm. entirely sure what we just did, but mm. um, something happened and I'll, I'll hear it later. So, uh, <laughs> so talk, so take me from there, Jeff. You okay? gave me your bank account number and your social. <laughs> it was weird, but I wrote it down. Okay, Jeff, get like, where do we go from here? Yeah. I mean, I, I think the, the ways that I have, like compassion for the Jeff who who chose these spiritual paths. I, I think the, you know, the point of contention I have with, with that Jeff is, you know, it's not Jeff, you shouldn't have become an evangelical at that age. It's, it's not Jeff, you shouldn't have then become this more progressive stripe of, of reformed Christian. It's okay. You stayed, you stayed in that place about a decade too. Yeah, that's okay. It's a long life. A decade's not everything, but it was, uh, it really hampered some growth. And I think one of the ways that it hampered that growth is uh, a lot of shame that fits so well. It's one of the reasons it spoke to me, fits so well into the categories of shame that I was raised with. And, you know, I think that had some, you know, a lot of destructive force uh, in my career, you know, try uh, auditioning successfully when, you know, your self-criticism is off the charts Mm. or doing anything creative when your self-criticism is off the charts and, you know, and handicap me in my relationships really, really broadly. And I think the big shift for me, you know, there are a few of them, you know, becoming a father, it's been seven years now, certainly had an impact fighting within my reformed church to, to change things, uh, you know, being a, a voice of dissent and then, you know, giving up on that sort of gadfly status I had 
after my mom's death sort of tore things open and, and made me a lot more aware of what was most important to me. And the election of Trump um, making me sure that I had to find another or a different way of working in the world. And, and for me, that became um, going back to school and, and becoming a therapist of, of sort of working one human at a time, one hour at a time, uh, and watching, being able to bear witness to, to human change and growth rather than taking these swings for the fences and, you know, write the script or, or, or get the part that, you know, connects with whatever faceless thousands. Okay. Let's, let's slow Mm -hmm. that part down a little bit because I want to, Mm. your present transformation is Mm. like, is this moment, those few just absolute kind of lightning rod, lightning Mm. hitting the tentpole kind of events, Mm. mother's death, not to mention marriage and children prior to that, which is, for most people, you know, that alone is enough to have a massive mm. transformation, but then your mother's death. Mm. And then this final disillusionment with your latest and maybe last iteration of church life. Mm. So if you're okay with it, I, I want you to mm-hmm. tell me a little bit more about what's happening right before your mother dies. Is she getting ill? Is that something that you start to see coming? Is it not something that, is it a surprise? And where are you at in that moment with your faith? Because the person I remember, the Jeff I remember was doing outreach. I mean, you, you'd say you were criticizing from the inside, but from, from the outside, you were, you were doing a lot of outreach. You were representing Mm -hmm. the church. You were running, from what I understand, you were running programs, right? Mm -hmm. You weren't a quote unquote preacher, but you were doing a lot of preacher associate type duties. Yeah. And so you have your two children, you have your wife. Mm-hmm. What happens with your mother? This is the first massive wall that you you break through on your way to the Jeff you are today, right? Yeah, I mean, it's one version of the story. You know, there's so many, so many meaningful moments and so many, so many of them were, were smaller, you know? They weren't cataclysms, but they, they still meant a lot. Um, life in the church, or for a thinking and feeling person, life will do that to you. And I, would certainly had sort of that gadfly status of, of objecting about points of doctrine or whatever, whatever other fucking, uh, excuse we made, uh, for not treating all humans with love Mm. or, you know, saying the word love while, uh, actually engendering shame. That's a real, that's a real Calvinist trick for you. Mm. The quote, loving the sinner, hating the sin bullshit. It's a, you know, it's a real Trojan horse for, Calling love's opposite shame, love, uh, really dastardly stuff in my current um, therapeutic lens. But yeah, my mom's death was certainly a shock. She was an alcoholic. And, you know, the last time I saw her, she had come out to meet my, my youngest child when he was just a month old for her birthday. So that would have been like July 2015. And she was happier and drinking less than I'd ever seen. Mm-hmm. And then, you know, by October, I got a call. You know, I hadn't heard from her about a month. And that, that was very normal. You know, big drop-offs in communication. And, you know, so the last I knew, she was in a really good place. And so I got a call in October from a doctor you know, she'd been admitted to the hospital and that she was bleeding from her esophagus and, um, and that it was, it was dangerous, but, but, you know, she was, she was probably going to recover. And, 
you know, just within a few hours, the same doctor called me back and said, get on a plane now. And so, yeah, it, it, it was, uh, it was just the, you know, the, the suicide is the darkest thing. And I, I don't really have a way to conceive of her death other than that. You know, I, I know her emotional life really well and I know what drinking is to her. And she had, you know, this is sort of the postmortem. I, I didn't know this, but it seems the last few weeks of her life, she had welcomed back into her life my, my stepdad, who she divorced in order to flee from his extreme alcoholism. He, he'd he been trying to drink himself to death. That was his job, uh, nine to five. That was his job drinking wow. for over a decade. And it was going to pull her under and she escaped you know, when I was, you know, just newly out of college. So they'd been divorced for over 10 years by this point that she, you know, they always loved each other very much still. And they began living together again, just a few weeks before her death. And so, you know, just being with him for a few weeks and, and drinking with him for a few weeks, uh, killed her. My God. And it was just, extraordinarily painful. It was the same circumstances that I'd experienced with her, like, like almost a decade prior, I, I met her in Pittsburgh for her great aunt's, her great aunt's funeral. And she was bleeding in a similar way. And she didn't want to go to the hospital. And I, you know, I, I was sort of the, the voice with some moral authority in her life who could just say, we're, we're, we're fucking going. And you know, this time it was the same scenario. And, you know, I talked to the people who were around her then and they said, you know, she refused to go. She refused to go. She refused to go until she finally did. And it's a difficult thing to feel that the, the difference between these two scenarios is I wasn't there in, wow. on the second time. And so, you know, for all those reasons, for, you know, the way she was there for me, like, like nobody else was, you know, my father's a very legalistic person who, doesn't who doesn't do love uh well uh, i'm trying to stop making excuses for him i think i could just end the sentence there yeah he doesn't do love and so losing that one parent and then over time me and my brother have had some really beautiful conversations about this over over time just sort of coming to terms with uh the fact that you know you're an orphan now it's been it's been really tough. Wow. A lot of therapy. Well, this is where we got to take the last break. Mm-hmm. And then we'll be jumping off from this point when we return. So I'll see you back here in a couple minutes. God and Other Delicacies has a weekly newsletter. If you'd like to subscribe, email me at godsdelicateshow at gmail.com and I'll put you on the list. Also, if you're listening to this show on iTunes right now, I'd love it if you scrolled to the bottom, hit five stars, and wrote a one to two sentence review. It really does help the show reach more listeners and it means a lot to me because I read them and it's nice to read nice things. All right, everybody, we're back in our final segment with Jeff. 
and we're left at a really heavy moment in his life where his mother has just died. And Jeff, what happens there? You know, you, you kind of told us what happens, which is that you're going to leave the church. You have these big family shakeups, this big personal life shakeup that's going to happen in the wake of that. But how do you, the Jeff of that time, start to try to figure out how to move forward? Yeah, I think the thing that really comes to mind is this relationship I had with one of the pastors on staff at, at that church um, at a time where we were both moving out of it. But, you know, he was a, a, a care pastor and, you know, had a had a counseling degree and, and was such a, a beautiful and caring presence in my life. And the way that he he connected to me and helped me process, his name is Jeremy Weiss, one of the most beautiful people I've ever known. And the way he helped me connect to the pain of my grief and to the broader grief in my life of, you know, professional and relational disappointment and what I wanted to do. And as I, you know, began at that point to process, you know, do I want to become a therapist? I know I want to do something else. I know I don't want to just be a performing artist or in the entertainment business that even if I do continue to do it, I don't want to just do it. And I remember this moment with him and, and we'd met in Echo Park, which, you know, I've lived in Echo Park pretty much all of my 20 years, well, almost 20 years, uh, what, 17 years in LA. And I remember this moment after my mom's death where I was just sitting there and looking at the ducks and um, for, a, for a little lake, uh, it's it's a pretty choppy place because there's that giant fountain that spouts 70 feet high. And, mm. and it was dusk and the, the light was hitting the water and the water was just sweeping toward me. And every one of my senses were at level 10. And this is at a moment of my heaviest grieving. I, I'm in so much pain. The, the, the pain of, you know, grief that just sort of comes out of nowhere and it's so physical uh, punches you in the gut and brings you all the way down to your knees. Um, and you go through it and especially early on, you think it's going to kill you. You're, you're on the floor and it's the 15th time this has happened. And you say, I can't endure this any longer. And I, I had been on the ground just a few minutes prior and I was up, I was standing up and I was looking at the water and, and I was struck by all of my senses, by the beauty of that moment. And I think it was a really visceral way that I came to know again, came to reconnect to how an honest connection to our emotions, even though the ones that we don't particularly like, um, opens us up to a deeper experience of the world. Um, and of course I wouldn't wish grief on anyone, but I think it very much cracked me open. And I see that so much in the lives of my loved ones that grief can do that and that there's a lot of fuel there if you want to use it. And so, yeah, processing on my own and with loved ones, with with my wife, Kelly, at, at the time, my co-parent, Kelly. 
And she was going through so much then too, not shortly before she's a nurse and she was a first responder to a car accident in front of our house. And a man who looked like me, who was a writer like me on our block with her, you know, young kids inside, uh, died in her arms. And, you know, as she performed CPR, vomited in her mouth. And, and she, she got broken all the way open. She is such a performer. I mean that in the sense of, you know, she's, she's a very driven person and very, very much an achiever. And she went back to work immediately. And and after a couple of weeks of saying, I'm fine, I'm fine. Just like, Oh, I'm not fine. And went through a course of trauma therapy that really, really provided a lot of healing and sort of a jumping off point, I think for her in a way that both seeing her process and partnering with her in that process and then going through my mom's death provided a jumping point, jumping off point for me for this spiritual deconstruction, this idea of there's so much to undo here and there's no avoiding, there's no avoiding the conclusion that some of what we've got to undo is from our religious system. Hmm. Wow. Okay. So you have that realization. Are you still attending the church at that time? Let me think now. So yeah, up until my mom died. And then it wasn't, it wasn't very long after that I wasn't. Uh, it had already been a couple of years ago that I was just sort of the one being like, guys, come on. Do, do we really fucking think that this is how this Jesus fellow would have us have us act like all the things that a church does to survive as a business yeah. or the ways that a service is run, just, you know, and, you know, putting those objections up for, for years is an exhausting job. And it was uh, sustainable for a while. Cause there were dozens of us, dozens of us artists, artists I respected so much. They were brilliant artists and faithful people. And it was so special for me to find those united in, in individual people. That was new for me to respect someone as an artist and also, you know, do church with them. But then by the time I left, I was, I was it. Everybody else had already left mm-hmm. um, for so many of these same objections that I was raising. And as we moved into the time of Trump, the snail's pace of cultural change within the institution of my church just became a less passive concern, right? It wasn't just upsetting. It wasn't just something to fight against. It was, no, Jeff, take a step back. Like, what's the best you're going to do? Well, you keep, you keep riding this horse 20 years from now. You play a part in allowing women to preach. That's as far as you could push this institution, probably. It's just like, yeah, okay, it's not the institution for me. Mm. Just trying to do that zooming out of like, yes, there's so much good here. There's so much beauty. And yeah, it might be really hard to recreate that. You might never recreate it again, but there's also so much complicity that you just can't stomach anymore. So you move out of that neighborhood, you get a new place. Yeah. At what point do you start to sense that you and Kelly are, are not writing on the same like track anymore. Yeah. 
It's such an interesting question and it's such an important thing that we've been in dialogue, you know, that for the entirety of our marriage, there's always been a lot of, of difficulty of just how differently we're built, our attachment styles, our, our history. And of course, after 10 years of marriage, that also means history with each other, the ways that each of you have hurt each other. And so there's, there's so much there. And I think it's true that the whole time there were a couple of senses and they were both true. And one is this is extraordinarily difficult with who we are and how we're built to, to make this work the way that, the way that we communicate, the way that we, the way that we deal with touch and sexuality and beliefs of all kinds, whether they're religious ideologies or not, but at the same time, a real connection to such deep care and such, such deep love. And so it was always a struggle between those two. And I, I think it, there's no way in which it won't continue to be a struggle as we've uh, been le- legally separated for this calendar year now. I, I think what it really means to me is that we both decided for our sakes as individuals, our sake as a couple, and our children's sake to work our asses off on, on who, we are, who we were. And that meant years of couples therapy and years of individual therapy and, and years of study to become a therapist in my case and, and other coaching work and other, you know, stuff, advocacy and all that stuff that each of us did as individuals and together. And I think when you make that commitment to growth and I, I would speak of Kelly in, in no way other than a growth oriented human being. She is, my goodness, when I think about, you know, Nick, like the ways that, you know, you and I haven't been in touch very much for a number of years now, you know, when I think about those friendships with her, it's just, she's a, she's a, a different human being. And I say that as a deep compliment. She has done such hard work to pull off so much of what was, what was in the way. And so, you know, for her, that meant that, you know, when we, when we made the decision to separate, she, she had, you know, been a, she became a vegan. She'd been, she's been a vegan for a couple of years now. It meant that she got sober. She, she realized um, the way she'd been using alcohol was deeply problematic. I think she's been sober for uh, what, like a year and three or a year and four months now. It meant her history in the church is very different from mine. You know, the conception that I can give of, well, in the church, I found more health. That's not her story. Her story is that the church was always tied up in her abuse and her pain. Mm. It was not healthier. It was, it was always wrapped up in the bad stuff. And you know, for the sake of her growth, she had to become and identify as an atheist. I, I have a strong sense that for both of us, our categories are, are shifting. And I, I don't think she identifies in that way anymore. And that too is a testament to her willingness to, to flex and to grow. Yeah, I think it's such a complex thing that, you know, we're committed to working through because in the end, we're still family. And I think we're going to be the best co-parents we can to our kids. And right now, I see plenty of pain, but I also see two individuals who are getting more of what they need 
and less of, you know, some pain that had just become unbearable. And I see a couple of kids who also seem to be getting more of what they need. And, and it's a deeply healing thing for me to see a divorce or a separation as a non-nuclear event. That's the only, the only image I was ever given, both within my family system and within Christian shame culture. You know, all the ways that you keep yourself from ever considering something like divorce um, yeah. is this shame narrative of it'll destroy your kids and they'll become seven-year-old drug addicts. Right. Yeah. I think this is the time where you tell me when you get the idea for the book and what writing the book meant to you, not only as a creative piece, but clearly as a therapeutic act? Yeah, it was certainly an act. So I, I, I wrote this letter. I wrote this letter about my resignation from the church, which, you know, as, as you said, I, I, was a, I was a lay leader. I, I led small groups. I, I, I did organizing and outreach. And, and I've been at the same church for 13 years in leadership positions. And so I felt a, a need to explain uh, my leaving. And I, and I wrote this letter on, on Facebook about it. And, you know, as I spent time with that letter, I, I realized that there was more to say. Um, and as I interacted with people, you know, people who were pissed off about it and, and people who were supportive of it or, or whatever in between, I realized there was more I had to say. And, and as I started to write, yeah, just the ways that you and I are talking about how, you know, if you're going to de- if you're going to deconstruct your religion, you're definitely going to end up deconstructing your marriage. And, and that's not to say that, that that means that your marriage is going to cease to exist. It means that you're going to have to find new meanings. Because in a marriage like mine, 100% of the meanings were founded upon the belief system that we'd both since left. Hmm. And so I, I began writing this book about this dude in a, a, a very similar position to mine, but I, I remain a storyteller and... I sort of need both the protection, the personal protection of saying, hey, it's a novel, but also I, I need as a storyteller the, the ability to, to make shit up in order to, to sketch things as, as I want them to for both you know, purposes of ideas, but also aesthetic ideas. I, I happen to be an aesthetic-minded fellow. So yeah, it was, it was simultaneously, certainly unabashedly a work of narrative therapy that I, and I knew that, you know, probably on day five of, of starting to write it, but also a way of engaging with uh, the creative world. I, I just needed to step back. You know, I, I've been writing scripts for so long and it was so rare that I was engaged to write a script for, for somebody else It's mostly writing my own original scripts, which is great. And I love it. But you know, when you write scripts that you intend to be weird and they don't end up getting produced. It's sort of the natural journey for a weird script. Mm-hmm. At a certain point, you know, it, it's just a real grind. And I, I needed to step back from it and write something just for the page. I, I haven't written something that was just for the page for such a long time. And, and it was healing in that way to reconnect to the way that I fell in love with writing in, in college and, and after. And, yeah, it was, I hope, a work of healing on my part to reconcile myself to myself. I think what I'm struck by is we're in some ways mm. at the end of the story as it exists in this moment. Mm. 
what's really striking about it for me is just how open the future mm. of it feels. Yeah. <laughs> you have so much behind you. Mm. But you have essentially entirely cleaned your slate. Yeah. Like you have started a new profession, which you find sustaining financially, oh, yeah. Yeah. emotionally, mm -hmm. rewarding spiritually and emotionally, all of the things, the psychological benefit of learning and helping. Yeah. You are entirely reworking your parenting relationship and situation. Mm-hmm. But also traumatizing them by trying to homeschool them. Oh, God. <laughs> well, that's not by choice. <laughs> I'm going to fucking die. <laughs> oh, man. Yeah, man. I, I didn't want to make this kind of quip earlier, but I was like, what a beginning of a year to start the separation. <laughs> Holy oh, noise. <laughs> and and, and me, and oh, Kelly, me and Kelly are friends again, which is so, so beautiful to me. Those were the saddest moments. I lost a little bit of hope that we would become friends again. And and I actually, so I, will you hold that thought? I, so I think it's yeah. important for me to say here that yeah. something that I didn't feel like I needed to mm. uh, kind of narrate at the beginning, but um, you started as friends. You became, you were actually, your mm. entire relationship is based yeah. on being best friends. You met as random roommates who ultimately fell in love just through your, your sheer friendship yeah. with each other. And yeah. I think it's really kind of, noteworthy to me that you would say right now that yeah. one of the most painful aspects, because I entirely believe it, is yeah. that you wouldn't be friends with each other because that is at at its essence what your relationship was. Yeah, absolutely. After five years of therapy, we became communication ninjas. Um, we're, we've always been good parents who can really have philosophical decisions about how we do this thing. And yes, we were roommates and best friends for three and a half years before we ever considered dating. And so, you know, as much as there was so much of a romantic relationship together that was so deeply painful, you know, those moments when it also seemed that the friendship might disappear were just crushing. And I mean, I'd even hearken back to a moment that I, I remember really strongly between you and me, Nick during a period that me and Kelly were broken up after we started dating. Mm -hmm. And, you know, after we got back together, you would always remind me of Jeff, like you were, you were horrible in that span of weeks. Like you looked like death. And that's, that's what that period, this like six week period a few months ago, where it seemed like the friendship would end. That, that felt like death. Mm. Oh yeah. I remember that. Jeff, it's a really beautiful share, you mm -hmm. know? It's a really beautiful share. I'm so on board with people learning about themselves mm -hmm. and what they need to do and making very extraordinarily difficult choices to do what's right. You've now reset the pieces to, to make the next half of your life knock on wood, that we all get another half at our age of 40, <laughs> that you get to make it what you want. It's really interesting to find out what it is that that's going to be. Yeah. Yeah. And that's exactly what the good days look like. 
there's a real sense of adventure and curiosity about about that. I don't want to be anchorless, right? You know, I, there's so many anchors in my life I don't I don't want to lose. We're always going to have a you know, a 50-50 co-parenting relationship because that's who we are. But yeah, there's so much else down to living space and, you know, car purchases and all that stuff. Mm. Yeah, I I just feel so lucky and I, I really prefer, you know, no longer being an evangelical. I really prefer lucky to blessed. I think blessed so strongly implies that you're God's favorite. I just feel so lucky that I ended up in therapy because it's it just lights my fire. It is so healing and beautiful and life-giving to be a part of people's healing. So Jeff, there's one thing I don't know if I totally understand. How would you categorize or define what your faith is now, and would you still consider yourself a Christian? Yeah. You know, I think one way that it's important for me to think of it is, I think I've I've gone through phases where all the same facts on a given day can be very important for me to make sense of by saying, I am a Christian. And and on another day saying, uh, no, that's not the best identifier. I've been so in the world of the church, but more to the point, more to talk about the positive, so impacted by Jesus's life and ethos that, you know, so many of the forms of my life down to sort of my constitution as a human have been shaped by that. And I, I think you it's natural to go through a, a phase of like, oh, I'm going to take a sledgehammer to it. And I don't know if I really ever felt that, and I don't know that I will, because I, I do like who I am. And I, I love that my ethos, as far as social justice is concerned, as far as as far as so much of how I view and talk about the criminal justice system or racism or sort of anything having to do with injustice in the world, that that stuff is it is a Christian ethos and I am choosing it, right? It's not just habit. Jesus will continue to be one of the primary ways I make sense of my world and find guidance and faith. The difference is simply that, you know, I'm not cajoled. I don't have some, some fear of uh, violating the orthodoxy or, you know, or, or going to hell or anything crazy like that any longer. It just happens to still be useful in some ways, even as I it, remain on the lookout for ever more ways that it is no longer useful and I should do the work to remove. Hmm. But you'd still, at, at the moment, sometimes in your mind, you're like, today, I would say I'm a Christian. Tomorrow you may Almost not be. Almost all the time. I I think that the, the, the difficulty, and this is connects to the thing I was saying about like sometimes really important for me to say I'm a Christian. It's a defiant statement because I know so well how the Christians of my past, whether we're talking about my father or father figures within the church, how important it is to them to say, oh, God, no, no, you're not. Hmm. So that's part of it, but 
I think a deeper way of saying it is that just as a evangelical Christian get, get caught up trying to see the book of Genesis, which is poetry, as a biology textbook, mm. it's quite a misreading. Well, so too, the atheist can say, you know, there is no God and therefore, you're not, you know, since you're not believing in a fact, therefore there's no truth. And I just vehemently disagree with that. My belief is that God is at least mostly a metaphor. And there's plenty of days where I feel that God is entirely a metaphor. However, as a therapist, one of the ways I work is that humans are meaning-making machines. It's what we do. Stories are the most important thing we have. So if stories are the most important things we have and God is only a metaphor, well, it's still a very important thing. And I know that's deeply threatening. I can see my former self being very threatened by that. But my current self loves metaphors and can accept calling God love or acceptance or communion. So too, he can say, well, yeah, I'm a Christian, but I also don't believe that saves me or you're not being a Christian condemns you. That's good. Jeff, I, I love you, man. It's been really extraordinary getting to have this conversation with you. I'm, I'm thankful for these conversations every week and they surprise me every week, but um, it was a surprising gift in addition to just catching up with you the way I knew it would be, uh, you know, as special to share a moment of real. I don't like the part where you said, I love you. And then you, you covered it over with a bunch of words in case I didn't want to say it back. <laughs> okay. I love you, Nick. I love you too, man. All right. Thank you all for listening. I'm gonna. I'm going to. I'm going to uh, toss at windmills. <laughs> no, that's good. That's good. Mm -hmm. um, uh, very good. Very. Uh, sorry. Hold on. Let me. Let me get there. I know that there's mm -hmm. a wonderful word from it from a book. That's a wonderful Spanish book written by yeah, Cervantes. It's, it's Quixote. That's <laughs> yeah, Quixote. I, I was like, I got to Cervantes I, before I got to Quixote. I messed it up. It's not toss at windmills. I I staggered forth for a moment. It's uh, oh, what is it? Uh, oh man. There's yeah, a, yeah, what does he a do? Lovely, yeah, yeah, a lovely yeah. word for what he's doing at windmills. Uh, well, then this is obviously going to be like, either I'm going to cut this or this is going to be at the end of the show in the Easter you, egg. You cut this, I'll fucking kill you. <laughs> you cut this, I will cut you. If you, if you... This is clearly your, the Easter egg now. If you misinform your listenership that I'm an articulate individual, <laughs> you and me are going to have words. <sighs> Go Inarticulate <on>. words. <laughs>